Food is so important in every culture around the world. Sharing food, what we eat, how we're supposed to eat it, when we're supposed to eat it is really embedded in the fabric of all of our communities. And then when we have a challenge related to food, that is just ever present. And it can become really painful to think, how am I going to go just to eat a meal that everyone else seems to be able to do? But for me, this is going to be very challenging. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Into the Light. I'm your host, Dulce Rivera. And in today's episode, we will talk about eating disorders and the stigma associated with them. Just now, you heard Dr. Will Meek's voice. Dr. Meek is the head of counseling and psychological services at Minerva. And in this episode, he will be sharing some insight into eating disorders and sharing some advice for those who might be struggling with eating disorders or for friends who want to be more supportive. This podcast spans different facets of mental health, but I want to emphasize that this series is not meant to be a substitute for counseling because, well, spoiler alert, I'm just an undergraduate student and not a licensed therapist. If you think you would benefit from talking to a therapist, please don't hesitate to reach out. As a bonus at the end of this episode, I've listed various useful resources that can provide additional help and support. Trigger warning. The following story contains highly sensitive information regarding eating disorders, depression, and suicide. Writing a story about my mental health journey at Minerva was never something I saw coming before moving to San Francisco. I considered myself to be normal, which is a word I have come to hate as a descriptor for those who were never forced to think about their mental well-being. Overall, I came to San Francisco excited. I was excited about the people I would get to meet, the places I could visit, and the interactive classrooms I was promised. But weirdly enough, what I was most excited about was being able to shop at Trader Joe's, which I had only seen in health bloggers' videos before, and to weigh out my food without having to hide that from my family. If you think that's weird, just sit back and listen. And if you can relate to that consuming desire to be thin, then... I challenge you to stop and notice your hunger cues right now and let this story give you some insight into my recovery. You are never alone in what you are facing. Having an eating disorder at Minerva is weird. Food is integrated into so many aspects of the community that it seems impossible to escape. We eat at feasts, we steal the snacks from the office, we get together at events and request funding for snacks, no matter the event that we are organizing. None of these things are bad or need to change, but they can be incredibly painful for people fighting their eating disorders. Apart from the community-organized events around food, it is also something that I couldn't escape just with my peers. I don't know how many hours I have wasted trying to calculate the exact caloric content of any restaurants I would be invited to, or gone to coffee shops trying to justify getting a chai latte 
or boba to myself with the exercise I would put my body through later. Some classmates seemed oblivious. Others were sticking to unsweetened tea and meal prep containers themselves. Whenever I saw a fellow student turning the label in their hand to read the numbers, I would think to myself that we should talk. But we never did. I lasted for about two months into the first semester before my carefully constructed net of workouts, scales, no sugar drinks, and 1,200 calorie days came crashing down on me. The change happened gradually, yet too fast for me to comprehend in some ways. First came the binges. If you have ever deprived your body and your soul the way that I did for that long, then you know what the hunger feels like. The kind that makes you scared that you will never feel satisfied again. When I decided to eat a cookie, it felt as if I couldn't physically bring myself to stop until the whole box was empty. It was humiliating. It was unsettling. It was painful. And it made me want to run for hours just to work off the extra calories. I don't know how long I would have kept up the binging and purging if it hadn't been for the onset of my depression. In a way, I now think that it was always there, just hiding behind the coping mechanism that food presented to me. And when the control that I had over my eating slipped, so did my depression. I spent hours sitting in my room, crying, and beating myself up for the fact that everyone else seemed to be doing so well. It was easy to think that way if you looked at their Instagram. On good days, I would go out with a friend to explore a new part of the city. On bad days, I would walk through the Golden Gate Bridge, needing that knowledge that I still had control, that I could end my life if I really wanted to. And most of the time, I would just end up at Bob's Donuts, because what did it matter how much I weighed, if I would end my life anyway? At that time, I thought I would never get better, but I was completely and utterly wrong. During the spring semester, I noticed that my binges were getting smaller. My weight gain was slowing down a bit, and even though I did not give myself credit at the time, my actions played a big part in it. I read books on intuitive eating, stopped weighing myself, started journaling, unsubscribed to every health and fitness influencer, went to therapy every single week, even if it was exhausting, and I started looking into the possibility of inpatient treatment over the summer. If I reflect on my life now, I can confidently say that food is not something that takes up my mental capacity anymore. It is something I forget some mornings, enjoy with friends, cook without any worry of the caloric content and added sugar. So I guess if you wanted to take away anything from my story, it should be two things. First, remind yourself that you do not know what others might be struggling with. And secondly, no matter what you might be going through right now, just take the next step. You will get there. This is Dulce speaking again. And to the individual who is kind and brave enough to share this story, 
thank you so much for opening up and being candid about your struggles and your recovery. Thank you for reminding us that we are not alone in our struggles and to keep going even when it seems impossible. I hope your message is able to touch our listeners and bring some hope to their lives. After reading this story, I began to research eating disorders and how they impact college students. I found that eating disorders have generally high rates among university students. The estimates range from 8% of students to 32%. There are various different types of eating disorders that affect people in different ways, but the most common ones among university students are anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder, which all have different symptoms and are described in the DSM-5, the Psychological Manual to Assessing Mental Health Disorders. But as I continued to research, I came across another term, disordered eating. Disordered eating describes many types of irregular eating patterns and behaviors. This can include things like dieting or skipping meals, fluctuations in weight, and even using exercise to make up for eating unhealthy foods. However, some of these behaviors can potentially also be symptoms of eating disorders. So where do you draw the line between disordered eating and eating disorders? As someone with not much knowledge or personal experience with eating disorders, I did not know the answer to this question. So if you are feeling confused right now, don't worry, that's the exact same way I felt as I tried to understand the difference. The more I researched, the more the lines between the two became blurrier and blurrier, and because I lack the expertise to fully understand them, I decided to call someone who might be able to help me understand them better. Before recording this episode, I had already talked to Dr. Will Meek a few times. As the new head of CAPS at Minerva, my university, Dr. Meek was very excited to hear from students about mental health on campus. Before joining Minerva, Dr. Meek was the director of CAPS at Brown. Throughout his career, he has counseled over 4,000 students, and his expertise is in providing a culturally informed approach to counseling. So I'm Will Meek. Uh, I'm really excited to be talking to you for your podcast. Yeah, good um, to have you, Will. What exactly are eating disorders and what is the difference between disordered eating? Well, the differences between disordered eating and an eating disorder, some of it is really, I think, left up for interpretation. Uh, so a lot of people have what we might think of as disordered eating. These could be like habits or patterns or rules or different mm -hmm. ways we approach food that are things that may have some negative kind of consequence in our life. They may also not, but that it's something about a way we engage with food or certain foods that is challenging for us for whatever reason or our, our kind of habits we have that might hurt our body in some sort of way, even in a small sort of way. Where an eating disorder is going to be something that's really defined by a couple of different texts. One of them is the mm -hmm. um, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5, DSM-5, which would have certain criteria for anorexia nervosa, um, bulimia, and then uh, binge eating disorder and kind of some other types of conditions that are similar. And those are going to have certain symptom patterns and requirements of severity to be able to achieve a diagnosis of something like that. 
where disordered eating is going to be something that might be a precursor to developing an eating disorder, but also may not. And so a lot of the times disordered eating is thought of as being kind of less severe, but still potentially problematic for the person, whereas an eating disorder is going to be something uh, a psychologist or a counselor or a physician may diagnose to, to start a course of treatment specifically to remediate a more severe syndrome. Yeah, so then in, in that sense, would dieting be considered more of a disordered eating type of thing? Well, it's when we kind of hit a gray area. So I think it would be a lot more about the how of the diet and the why of the diet. And there's ways people could have approach a certain way of, of dieting that would really be harmful to them. And they're doing it for reasons that aren't necessarily to improve their health and maybe not even for physical appearance or other sorts of health goals that might be necessary, depending on what's going on for them. So I think it really has to look more in the details. You know, there's certainly some people that for their own physical well-being need to change their approach to eating so that they can be healthier and not develop some sort of other type of illness. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people may be doing it for their, you know, purely for their appearance or to achieve a certain type of thing that they're chasing in athletics or other tor- sorts of goals. So it really is a lot more in the details of what they're doing and why. The other thing is there's no real objective measure of that. The measure mm-hmm. I usually use is, is it harmful for them or is it leading to harm in some sort of way? Physically, mentally is the metric I use. There's other people that might look at it a different way. But I think, you know, we really have to understand why somebody is kind of changing their eating habits, kind of how they developed, what the point is. Is it something that causes them distress? It's something that's hurting their body. If it is, to what level? So I think there's a lot of importance on not just hearing a certain thing or thinking about it one certain way, but really looking deeper into the details and the motivations or in collaboration, find out, is this good for you or not? So it sounds like a lot of different factors could be contributing to both disordered eating, eating disorders, and the motivation behind it and whether it's causing harm is what's really at the crux of all of this. That's the crux that I use. And I think that sometimes these things can lead to more problematic, broader disorders. So, for example, a lot of people that have restrictive eating disorders often will start out with a fairly benign motivation. I want to lose a couple of pounds. Or when I eat this food, it just doesn't make me feel good. And a lot of people can do that, and it ends up being okay. And then other people do that, and it gets to another step where it's like, well, if it works for that, why don't I do this? And I'm learning this about myself, and I'm starting to get this feedback from the world, and it can carry on and on and on and develop into something that's really complicated. So that's part of what's so tough about working with anybody around food and eating. It's so subjective. Food is so important in every culture around the world sharing food, what we eat, how we're supposed to eat it, when we're supposed to eat it is really embedded in the fabric of all of our communities. And then when we have a challenge related to food, that is just ever present. And it can become, like the person wrote, really painful to think, how am I going to go just to eat a meal that everyone else seems to be able to do? But for me, this is going to be very challenging. And I think there, for therapists that work with folks on any of the range of disordered eating to eating disorders, there has to be a type of empathy and, and sensitivity to how much food matters in people's lives and how much it can take over. I think it can be hard for somebody who isn't going through 
an experience of having an eating disorder to really be able to empathize what it is like to be living in, in their shoes. Because as you're saying, food is ever present in, in our cultures and in our societies. So that while maybe grabbing a, a snack for me might be like the, the normal thing, like for somebody who's going through this, it can be, you know, such a, a tough challenge. When we haven't experienced something like this before, we just have a superficial view of it. It's hard to understand, well, why don't you just choose to eat more? It seems obvious, but I think the actual experience of it isn't like that at all. And I think sometimes a doorway into that might be people who understand addictions more. If you're trying to stop drinking alcohol, but Mm -hmm. there's constant signals in your environment and in your own personal life that are signaling the presence of alcohol or that you should want it, it makes it even more challenging when your body is feeling a certain way or you're used to doing things a certain way. So Mm -hmm. one time I had a client who was really struggling with pretty serious alcohol abuse. They said, you know, you don't really notice when you drive around how often alcohol is present in the world. And so I drove home from my office that day and I'm like, I'm going to try to understand this. And I saw 15 bars billboards, beer ads, and ads for this restaurant with people drinking. I had some beer in my fridge that I saw, even posts on Instagram of people drinking or advertisements. I mean, it was incredible how many things like this were there. And I think if we thought about that with food, and we thought, this is someone who has a challenge with food, for whatever reason, and we thought, how many restaurants do I pass driving home from work or walking around town? How many smells do I smell? How many people do I see eating? How many advertisements do I see on social media or people celebrating food or a meal or planning food or going to the grocery store? It's everywhere. And I think there's got to be some sensitivity when people are really struggling with this, particularly around some of the restrictive types of eating disorders. The binge eatings and the bulimia end up having a little bit of a different experience sometimes. But the, um, the amount of signaling in our world around food and eating and how you're supposed to do it, for somebody that's challenged with that, it is crushing sometimes. And I think that's a thing to really consider if you're out there with a friend that's struggling with this or you yourself are out there. I think that's part of the issue is what we experience just globally and just culturally that makes this harder. And that's part of why sometimes folks need professionals to help them recover and get better. Yeah, I love everything that you just said because it makes so much sense to begin to consider what an experience like that could be like. One thing I would add to also see everybody appearing to be able to engage with that in some, I'm putting up air quotes, normal way, Mm -hmm. um, where they don't seem to be as concerned about it or thinking about it as much. That also can then feel very alienating and isolating. Mm -hmm. That this is something other people won't understand. Or when I've kind of dangled to them that this is a thing, they have an approach where it's like, why don't you just eat more? Mm-hmm. And to not really understand how deep that can go. I know that a modern trend now that we're seeing is that more and more women and men as well are dissatisfied with the way that their bodies look. How much does body image play into eating disorders? It absolutely plays some role for a lot of folks. It doesn't have to be there for folks that have struggles with stuff that's related to binge eating or restrictive eating patterns. A lot of the times it is, or it begins out of a motivation like that, and then it gets carried away. In terms of the the stuff around appearance, I think ultimately, I think I can only speak for 
the States and not having enough global experience to, I think, really understand how expectations of appearance are communicated in other parts of the world. But in the States, it's, you know, I have a kid who's six years old and he's already absorbed enough billboards and side conversations to understand how people are supposed to look or behave or they're supposed to be. Then mm-hmm. I think in some way when our bodies don't fit what that's supposed to look like, and that those, especially when those images or those expectations are on the more extreme side of things, that can start to really hurt us. And I think we all absorb that, even if we're not mm-hmm. in the identified gender that some of these signal, we still see that stuff and internalize those types of mm-hmm. messages. That this is what you're supposed to look like. This is how you're supposed to be. This is what your hair's supposed to look like, whatever. I think that can get even uglier when we start to intersect that with race and other sorts of parts of our identities. But what that ends up doing for some people, it makes them want to change what they look like. Just the act of doing that alone is not necessarily problematic. But I think when it hurts us, we're doing it because we feel terrible because we don't look like what we're supposed to. Again, air mm-hmm. quotes on supposed to. No, that's, that's, that's more challenging. And that, that can really be a lot more harmful. So given that, I think the, the focus on appearance, again, I, I appreciate that you brought up for identified men and women. This is certainly, I think, a huge part of the focus in the trans community, at least in the States, mm-hmm. about what your body is going to look like and how it's supposed to be and the struggles around body acceptance really for everybody. There's almost nobody that's not touched by this, mm-hmm. even the people that fit the cultural stereotypes when you talk with them and meet them they're consumed by it sometimes more than anyone else because they've actually are getting attention for that bottom line is i think having to look at what kind of signals our culture is giving us and our family and our friends and then figuring out how to counteract that so that people can broaden what's acceptable and then in their own lives feel like what matters is their health and their their quality of being a good person to me is a lot more important but I think for a lot of people, at least the beginning of eating disorder experience, particularly on the restrictive side, comes from not matching certain cultural mm-hmm. communications about our appearance. What can we do to, to begin to counter those messages and those signals from our environment, from our society that are telling us that we are supposed to look a certain way, supposed to be healthy in a particular manner? The first step is just keeping our eyes open to where we're seeing that and even to that idea, not just internalizing, yeah, this is what you're supposed to be like, this is what you're supposed to look like, but to notice why that's a certain way and where that's communicated and then where that's reinforced and continued to be valued so that when you start to really approach that idea and you really open your eyes to those types of signals, you'll see it everywhere. Part of what comes next is a consideration of in what ways am I having this done to me that I'm impacted by it? And then in what ways am I doing this to others? Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people that think about their appearance a lot or struggle with eating concerns are going through every single person they see out in the world and either doing a comparison to themselves or breaking the other person down. And it becomes a very appearance-focused mental process. And I've worked with a lot of folks that part of what they do when they're just walking around in the city is judging every single person they see, for lack of a better word. And sometimes it's a comparison against themselves, but sometimes it's a it's an internal running critique 
of other people's appearances. Now, I think for some people, it's harder to change how they feel about themselves. And it's easier to start to change how we're going to continue things like that or perpetrate that out. It's different when we start to say, should you be eating that? Or, oh, you're getting more food? Or, you know, you're not eating enough and kind of critiquing it. What it does is it keeps putting out these expectations out into the space of how we're supposed to be and what our bodies are supposed to be like. Being able to look at that, I think, is part two. And then part three, I think, is really a deeper unworking of, of our own programming around this that really reflects on our own bodies and our own minds and in ways we might want to influence the culture and our own kids and families in a positive way to take a stand around it and bring more people into conversation and saying, we got to knock this off. And we need to think about this a different way because I think you're beautiful and I love you. And I don't give a crap how often you've gone to the gym or what you've looked like over our (laughs) lifetime, you know, it doesn't matter. So I think it's got to be some progression. You can't get to the end without really noticing where this all comes from, how you've been, you're internalizing this and how you're maybe even perpetrating it. Mm -hmm. Then get to that last part of how do I get this out of me and how do I make sure I don't just remove the negative influence out in the world, but how can I then really be working to improve it and make it better for other people? For people that really, I think, struggle on a genuine like eating disorder level, a lot of the times if you really have those types of things at a certain level, you need a professional or a team of people to help you get out. And sometimes that road can be long and sometimes we find ourselves back in it. But I think it's important to kind of keep trying and keep realizing this is worth it and keep realizing that there is another side that you can get to with the right support and the right amount of time and to keep working mm-hmm. at it. Absolutely. And speaking of, of being supportive and spreading positive messages about normalizing these issues around eating and body image, what would be your suggestion for people who perhaps know other individuals who are going through eating disorders? How would you recommend that they help and support one another. Part of the ways that we can really help, one, I think, is going back through the journey I just described, you know, the way we can kind of become aware of this, figure out how we're perpetrating this, figure out how it's affecting us, and then trying to work for good. You know, it it really depends on who your friend or colleague is and kind of what the specific issues are. A lot of what we're talking about is more on the restrictive side and less on the binge eating side, which, again, kind of has sometimes its own type of experience and needs a little bit different understanding, although it's certainly related to this sometimes, you know, is to really, A, be really sensitive about it, two, taking a non-judgmental and hopeful and interested approach that's not going to judge them, it's not going to give them advice, but to really try to more deeply understand with empathy and care and love what they're experiencing. And I think when we start to facilitate that and go, yeah, thanks for letting me know, I'm sorry you're struggling with that. If you ever want to talk about this again, I'd love mm-hmm. to hear it. And to follow up, be like, hey, how's this stuff going with the eating? We haven't talked about that in a minute. And to just be open. And I think over time, when we can have non-judgmental, affirming, interested, loving conversations with one another, the time where real help needs to happen or real support needs to happen is naturally going to emerge. But I think it has to begin with a genuine connection, a genuine trust that I see you, I care about you. And I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to hurt you in this. I'm not going to make you feel ashamed that you're struggling with this. But that I'm just listening and taking it in. And I want to know more because I I care about you. That's what really matters. And then the rest can flow from that. If you're really confused about the whole thing and you just don't know, 
I think doing your own research doesn't hurt either. And I wouldn't just go to Google and search what's an eating disorder, right? Where people like me are going to write some blog about or, you know, about <laughs> it or whatever. Honestly, I'd go on YouTube and be like, what's it like to have anorexia? What's it like to have binge eating disorder? What's it like to have bulimia? And watch some videos of people telling you their experience, which is going to fit sometimes the pattern of what is going to be written from the experts. And then a lot of the time, it's going to give you a different quality. That sometimes there can be that little phrasing or insight that's going to help you get it. And so I think that's one of the coolest things about stuff like YouTube right now is there's a lot of people that are basically trying to help the world by saying, here's what I struggle with or have struggled with. Find those videos of people sharing what it's like and see if you can translate that back to your friend to try to get an even better understanding or perspective, particularly if you're just not getting it. And then honestly, like if anyone ever wanted to talk to a CAPS therapist just about like, hey, I've got a friend struggling with this. What can I do or how should I be? We'd love to help with that too. What would be your message for someone who is currently struggling with an eating disorder? If you're out there and really struggling with this right now and you know it's got into a level that's not good for you and you're concerned about it, but you're having that struggle where you're not sure what to do or sometimes you don't know if it's okay or not. It doesn't hurt to contact somebody at CAPS or another person that you trust or a doctor that you work with and just start asking them questions about it. Here's what I'm doing. Is this okay? Like, here's what I'm noticing. Starting like that can be a great entry point, not assuming here's what's going to happen, but trying to approach it with some curiosity. If I was going to be in therapy for this or get some kind of treatment for this, what does that even look like? What's the range of it? I mean, you have a right to ask questions like that and to get real answers. And I think if people start to get super pushy with you right away, unless they are concerned you're going to die like in the next week, and I mean that very literally, then I think you should keep shopping for the right approach where it's somebody you feel like is going to get you and be comfortable with you where you can walk the journey together and get better. Thank you so much for, for all your valuable insight, Will. Good talking to you. I left my conversation with Dr. Meek with lots of food for thought. I felt like we were just at the tip of the iceberg and that there was so much more to continue to explore. It is true that we can form genuine connections and actively listen to others and not make them feel ashamed that they are struggling. Even if we aren't directly impacted by eating disorders, we can all play even a small role in helping to destigmatize this topic. I would highly encourage you to continue to do your own research and learn more about eating disorders and the experience of having one. If you need a starting point on your YouTube search, I would highly recommend Emily Nicole's YouTube channel. In her videos, she discusses her journey with her eating disorder and what it has been like to go through her university experience with those challenges. If you enjoyed this episode, I invite you to share it with the people you love. Reach out to your friends and tell them about the information you learned. Oftentimes, we don't know what experiences others are going through, and sharing this story or the contents of this episode could help someone. If you would like to learn more about eating disorders and how they impact college students, please go to our website, www.intothelightpodcast.org where you can find the accompanying book. Each chapter is aligned with the episode number, so you can read more about each topic discussed in the series. If you are inspired by the storyteller and would like to share a story of your own, 
You can also find the submission form on the website where you will be able to read all of the stories as well. Thank you for tuning in this week and stay on the lookout for next week's episode. This was Into the Light with Dulce Rivera. <laughs>